Monkey till I go. The podcast project of the Fenebulist. By Leopold Lambert. Today, power of the book, clandestine libraries in Cuba, and infinite ones in Borges' work. Today, my guest is uh, Li Duan Pong, who's uh, been uh, studying both architecture and literature, which uh, brings us directly to the topic of uh, today's discussion, which is about libraries, so that's a, a pretty good mix between architecture and, and literature, I suppose. And uh, hello, Lidwam. Hello. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's something I don't really like to do, which is to characterize uh, my guest. But uh, for the sake of this uh, of this conversation, I have I need to ask you a little bit about uh, your autobiography. I mean, pl please just tell us as much as you think it would be useful for us to understand the conversation and what's going to follow about uh, as we will see. Uh, uh, informal libraries, clandestine libraries in Cuba and, uh, and uh, all the things around this topic. Um, should I speak in the third person? Like, Liduan was No, born. no, you should not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, um, I'm Cuban, which is part of the, I guess, the, to the topic at hand is like uh, clandestine libraries and just libraries in general in Cuba. Um, I lived in Cuba until I was 15, 16 years old, and uh, then moved to the United States. Um, I, that's kind of like the major point of the biography that's important, I think. Um, all, all the knowledge and all the things that I know about Cuba have to do with the, the time of, that I was there and, and the years that closely followed that. Um, I left Cuba in 1992. Um, so basically the 80s and the 90s are the time that I, I'm most familiar with. Um, everything else uh, that has happened since I'm not extremely familiar with, so I'm not going to comment on anything like that. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I come from a family of... Um, my parents are architects, a lot of people around them were uh, writers and musicians and people in, in that sort of world, and I feel like I have a... Uh, I had a, a lot of contact with people that, that were very interested in reading and in books and in culture in general and, mm. and the vicissitudes of those people trying to get the information that they wanted. So I was always very interested in that. So that's, I guess, where okay. that comes from. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so maybe for me to introduce a little bit more uh, what we're going to talk about today, I have to say that you, you already did a, a little work for the Phenomenalist. Uh, based on that, you wrote a, a great text called Open Stacks in the first volume of the Phenomenalist papers that was talking about um, uh, those, uh, the censorship of uh, literature in, uh, in uh, 19, 1980s, 1990s Cuba, and um, probably before that as well, and probably. still, still, yeah. still, uh, still applying Very as well, but so. we're going to focus on, on, on this, uh, this era, and then a little bit later, with some um, with some uh, informal libraries that uh, uh, you're gonna talk us talk to us about uh, of of precisely providing the censored censored book uh, that are prohibited by the regime and uh, and maybe I'd like to to start uh, uh, <laughs> maybe starting with an anecdote because we we were we were preparing these uh, these conversations together. And uh, you you could not help but notice that uh, 
the the map the maps that I use for Archipelago is is a map of Caribbean. So you <laughs> you have a, a little bit you have I don't know maybe half of Cuba that's yes. that's that's on it. So you can see it each time. But that's that's quite an important that's quite an important aspect of uh, the problem because just like you point out in your you point out in the in this essay I was just referring to uh, you're you're using a quote from the poet uh, Virgilio Pineda mm. uh, saying that uh, an island is nothing else and uh, and I quote the terrible circumstance of water in every direction. Yeah. Which I find La terrible circunstancia del agua por todas partes. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and that, that, that characterizes the situation even more in the fact that um, an island is, uh, how to say, it's an entity in itself. So, mm -hmm. like, it's something that it's easier to control than the continents. Absolutely. Uh, it, so it's almost like a. It's almost like It's almost like a petri dish, right? You, you, somebody can, or some a group of people can come to an island and take it, seize it, and then basically do experiments there, and like you know, like the, whatever happens, so it's so uh, isolated from the rest of the world that that you have a lot of control over information in this case, which is what we're talking about. Mm. And um, uh, so may maybe maybe let's let's jump right in the in the topic and. And uh, I, I, I particularly like how you structured your text that uh, obviously will be linked to the website uh, to be to be read if needed as well. But c can you can you please may maybe also take the same structure and start with your twi twi uh, 12 years old you yeah. discovering a book <laughs> in your parents? Uh, yeah, shelves? when when I was a child, I, I like my I was my parents had me very young. So while I was growing up the people around me were young people, right? Like, they were in their 20s. They were um, kind of intellectually inclined people. So uh, a lot of the conversations happening in my house always have to do with, like, a lot of politics, but uh, books, literature, like, things in general that were, like, to me, very interesting. And I had this ambition to be a writer when I was a little kid. So I had typewriters and all these things, and I just was convinced that I was going to be an author. And... We knew, like, like uh, there were books in the house that we had downstairs that were visible, but there were also books that were upstairs by the bedroom that were not visible, and that some of them were covered in paper. Um, and my dad, my dad being an architect, and he, we had all these like fancy cans on paper and stuff that, um, to me, was also very fascinating. And I remember this one book being covered, and I was not supposed to read it, and my mom made it very clear that she didn't want me to read it, so I definitely wanted to read it. <laughs> And um, it was 1984 by George Orwell. And I um, actually didn't get to... I, I, I forget if I, I... I don't think I ever got to read it in Cuba. I think I only got to read it after. Because that book mysteriously disappeared from the shelves like, after a while. And like, I just thought that... I, I realized that there were like, all these books that, that we were not supposed to read. And although I, um, in, I, I just, I always had a hard time in my personal life in Cuba understanding what I was supposed to say and not supposed to say in public because those are things that you kind of develop as a second sense when you grow up in a society that where speech is like um, you have to be controlling what you say because you can get in trouble for what you say. I, um, I had a hard time like differentiating because in the context of my house, speech was pretty free, and people were basically would come and say whatever they wanted. So, I thought that reading was the same, <laughs> and like um, it took a while for 
for me to understand that and I don't know. Um, so j just to be specific, mm -hmm. your the let's take the example of 1984. Mm -hmm. You you basically would have the, the book in maybe Spanish version or yeah and, yeah the books and, would be and, in Spanish and then. Instead of the cover, I mean, the, in addition of the cover, you would have a, a second cover in craft paper. With yeah, people, there's a there's a story actually um, that was later made into a movie in Cuba years later, which I also found uh, pretty interesting that they would decide to make a movie out of that. But um, it was based on a on a story or a book, short short novel. Look, it was, it's not very long, by an author called Senel Paz, and it's called um, if I translate it. Uh, it was called El Hombre el Bosque, no, El, el Bosque el Lobo el Hombre Nuevo, which is like the 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 man, the forest, and uh, the the wolf, the forest, and the new man, and the new man uh, alleges like it's, it's referring to Che Guevara's concept of the new man and it's new quality like qualities of the revolutionary man. But um, in this short story uh, or story that is really really interesting, there's a huge part about books and like prohibited books and all this and and there is a mention of the character saying that they had this book by uh, Mario Vargas Llosa and whatever and that the book he would put a cover of the book using one of the magazines like Carmen Barbudo which is one of the revolutionary magazines and he would just take the cover and wrap the mm. book with this so that if he was like if somebody saw him with that book they would just like assume that it was yeah. something you know okay So that was definitely a practice, and I remember that book in particular being being covered in my house. And um, but the enthusiasm that people had for books and for reading these things, and like it was it was pretty incredible because I remember it being something that was extremely like if you knew that somebody had a book you wanted to read, like it was those lines where people waiting in turn for your turn to be lent this book, and they would just be moved through, you know entire uh, groups of friends and things like and they just go hand by hand and like so these th there was this like sort of black market of knowledge mm. in a way of information and it was not only books it was magazines as well and some of the magazines were just like stupid magazines like I don't know any any magazine any any foreign magazine of any kind be it fashion or uh, anything doesn't matter Rolling Stone just because it would be something that we had never seen before you know um so yeah i see <laughs> and um then in the in the in the text you brought your you're referring to a speech that uh fidel castro oh, did yeah. in, in 1998 saying that there is absolutely no censorship in books in cuba right. and you're you're then talking about uh so this couple uh berta del carmen Mexico mm -hmm. and Dr. Ramon Humberto Colas, mm -hmm. who decided to who decided to test if it was actually right. true. Yeah, because one of the things that the Cuban government did always was to I mean there was there's all this censorship and all uh, and all these books that were not allowed to happen and all these writers getting into all kinds of problems, including jail time and all kinds of horrible things happening to them because of just books and publishing abroad and things like that. And however. It was never, it was not something like you would, it was always like the the official um, statement would always be like, there's no censorship here. You can do whatever you want. Like, you know, it was always being like, I don't know what you guys are worrying about. You know, like the people that are complaining are obviously enemies of the revolution. So, you know, whatever. 
So there was this in the book fair in, my, in, in Cuba, they had Fidel Castro made this statement saying that uh, there were no banned books in Cuba. The only thing that we didn't have was money to buy books mm. because like obviously like everything else, the fault is the embargo and like the reason why people don't have books is because of the embargo. But like other than that, there's no banned books. So obviously this is a statement that would make everybody in Cuba laugh because it's like, obviously that's not true. Um, so this couple, which were in a, extremely brave because um, especially in the 90s and like, um, um, well, not I wouldn't say special in the '90s, but in the '90s, uh, there were all this like, well, that's a larger topic. But there was this like renewed um, uh, sy- systems that that were created to of repression, where like a lot of poets and a lot of people were would bring would have like mobs of the people that would come and beat them up or whatever. So there was all this fear about like having a mob like that sent to your house if you were you know, starting to be a little bit too vocal in, in one way or the other. So um, these two people, extremely brave, decided to say, okay, so you're saying that we can read anything we want? Okay, so then I'm going to open my house and I'm going to make available these books that I cannot find in a national library, that I cannot find any local library. And I'm going to let people come and borrow them in a borrowing system just like a library and see, um, and then it's, it's fine, right? You said it was fine. So this started to happen, and of course, like, it's a provocation, but at the same time, people were really excited, because, like, you really are really curious when you're in an insulated situation like that, and when, like, the only, you have two channels of TV, and it's like, you know, the, the newspapers, everything, that there's no access to foreign press of any kind, foreign TV of any kind, there was no internet at the time, so, you know, now, that's what I'm saying, that now it's probably a little different, because even though interning in Cuba is controlled and everything when you once that exists like it's really hard to control but um, back then there was nothing like that and um, they decided to do that and then a lot of other people decided to follow suit and say okay so they were in Las Tunas which is in the um, eastern part of the country and they're like okay so people in Havana people in a bunch of other places started doing it too and it became this hugely popular thing um, uh, when I say hugely popular, let's qualify that. It doesn't mean that it was like hugely popular, popular in the sense of like they, it, they were happening as mm. opposed to not happening, and there were people actually participating as opposed to not uh, participating in these things. Actually entering these libraries and doing this was already like so. The brave person is the person that starts it, but then everybody that goes along and goes to the place and gets the book is also participating in something that could very easily and was eventually. Uh, be like um, the government can say that you are being uh, a counter-revolutionary or that you are doing uh, CIA work or whatever Mm -hmm. and you can go to jail and a lot of them actually there was a big crackdown um, at the same time that the dependent library project was happening there was a different thing called independent uh, journalist project where like people would just report news and things that happened in Cuba uh, via radio and via all these ways and the government did a crackdown to of a lot of these people, and a lot of the ones that went to jail were um, librarians. So, you know, it 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 just um, it just proved that for the Cuban government, the control of information and was very important, and the books were perceived as something very threatening. So. Mm. And it's it's interesting. I mean, if we go back to this uh, to this speech by Castro in in nineteen ninety eight, it's interesting to see how. 
the, the operation here is not characterized by a kind of legal framework where it is said exactly what it, what you're not supposed to do. To, yeah. to do. It's, it's characterized by the norm, basically, rather than the law. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and the fact that you have to self-censor it. Yourself, police. That's yeah. something that is the key, I think, to mm. the kind of system that Cuba has, or had at least then. Um, I'm not persuaded that it's different now, but I don't know. Um, but it, you self-censor, you learn that. That's what I was in the process of learning when I realized that the books, some books were had covers and I was not supposed to read them and I was not supposed to talk about them. Um, at some point when you reach the, you know, the tender age of 12, 13, you realize that, oh, okay, so there's things that I'm supposed to say, things that I'm not supposed to do. And you just have these two different faces or these two different, completely different behaviors. One is with people you, can tr you think you can trust and the other one is with the general public. And um, people in Cuba are very good at that, very good at switching between those two registers of, of private and public. But there's also, I don't know, there's the, the, the sad thing about it is that there's a huge history in Cuba of um, violent oppression of um, you know, writers and poets and, and people that, um, like Reynaldo Arenas is a perfect example of somebody that was a writer Who's, who went to jail and had all kinds of, of problems because of publishing abroad his novel. And the thing about the law in Cuba or the, the reason why these things are, is that everything is kind of vague. You kind of know what you're supposed to do and you're not supposed to do. But the laws are equally vague so that they can get you for vague things. Like there's a, there's a law like called uh, peligrosidad, which or, means being dangerous. So under that umbrella, anything. Like, if I can say that you read in that book is dangerous for the revolution, and there you go, you can go to jail. Like, there's, it's vague enough to, mm -hmm. to be all-encompassing. So people are afraid of that because things are just like, you know, at any given moment, you can be cracked down and whatever, and they can search your house. And once they search your house, if they find a little magazine or they find anything that could be considered like a threat, then you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So... And maybe, can you be even slightly more uh, descriptive about what those uh, clandestine libraries were, were like? Like, you, you, you kind of started doing that, but how, how would it basically manifest? I, um, uh, what I know about them, because I wasn't in Cuba any, uh, anymore at the time that they, that they existed, but in the research that I've, that I've seen and, and the picture I've seen, they were as simple as a bookshelf in somebody's house. Mm. Um, people would, um, some, okay, so the way that books, that interesting books, books that were banned or books that people wanted to read would make it into Cuba, or usually um, foreigners, be it uh, visitors or tourists or people that somehow had a contact in Cuba and would come in as tourists and they would bring them in their luggage. There was like embassies that wanted to promote like free speech or whatever and would like bring books and give them to individuals uh, and then once the book was in the street it would start to disseminate so but there were people that because of their friends or because of the way that they lived had books and had a number of books and like sometimes these books would be put together and somebody would just say like I have a, we're sitting right next to a bookshelf like if this was mm. uh, the case I would just say Leopold like this is like the I don't know, something something library uh, 
I'm going to, you know, give you a card and you're going to check this book out and you're going to bring it back to me. And it was extremely informal. Mm -hmm. And it was just a little bit more formal than what was happening up to that time, which is basically uh, you just passing books from person to person. This was just became a, just, it was kind of like the library, which had, was completely stale in the official building and was not serving the needs of people that wanted to find information became this like backpacks and, and bags and people just passing books around completely devote like completely divorced from the idea of the institution in a building mm. and suddenly it just came back to the building but it came back to basically the shanty towns right mm. it became back to people's living rooms people's like barbacoas like in a way that was not and it was successful enough that uh, soon after, like the Cuban government started making like local libraries, like in response to mm. you know these phenomenons. But um. I see. And <laughs> ju just like you started to point out, it's it's it might be it might be worth it to say that we are doing this conversation surrounded by uh, I don't know probably two hundred three hundred books around <laughs> us, which are which are all yours. Yeah, and some uh, of them have actually came from Cuba with me. It's yeah, like from the times so. of. I mean, quite um, quite heterogeneous. I see Camus, I see Borges, I see, I see Murakami, I see Tolstoy. Uh, and there's uh, 1984, by the way. There's 1984, <laughs> and it's not covered in the paper. It's just it's yeah. Great. But 1984 is interesting. Just like uh, just like obviously in a more explicit example, uh, 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 Fahrenheit 451, and uh, and uh, other books like that that kind of dramatize um, how what is basically a single little object with some printed paper on it, some words yeah. put on put on some papers and it can, can kind of become the the target, the, the focus of uh, of uh, ideology ideological uh, hatred basically yeah. and, and I mean we can we can remember the nineteen thirty nineteen thirty three uh, Nazi autodafe in a Autodafe in uh, in Berlin and other places in in Germany, where where every book that was not considered as a, as a, as a kind of Harian way of thinking uh, would be would be systematically destroyed and burned, uh, and uh, so. Which paradoxically we, has the power to give all this power to books. Right? Yeah. Because when you make such a big deal out of them or when you say like make this large statement like I'm gonna burn them in the public square mm. like suddenly becomes this like thing that I, I don't know if, if I was telling you this before but it becomes that the act of reading a book that's banned is a political statement where like I remember as a, as, as a, as a young person in Cuba like I you have very there's very little that you can do in like against a, a totalitarian regime or whatever we can qualify like that or not, but like against a, a, an oppressive regime like that, there's very little you can do as an individual. They have like a very large machine of, of, of suppression of like any kind of dissent. So if you want to be a dissident, you are going to face a very, very painful road ahead of you. So people do very, very small gestures in order to feel like they have some kind of power against it. And that reading becomes that gesture. It really mm. becomes like, Having this book and reading this book, you feel like you're doing. And the writers, in turn, like the Cuban writers writing at the time, uh, and that extends to people doing um, uh, cartoons, people doing like um, comics, all kinds of things. 
the very, very, uh, very, very subtle between the lines way of making the state the statement that you know that people that are looking for it when they read it are going to get the message of what you're trying to say. Mm. It becomes this like really fascinating, like almost coded message thing that happens through literature and you like scour like things that you're reading for the signs of like oh look like this means that or and it it just becomes an activity that is both um it it, it helps you understand a lot of things better but also becomes kind of therapeutic because you are doing something Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to nothing (laughs) um and uh well i suppose that's also what characterizes their uh the difference between maybe uh uh, like an activist and someone who just practice the activity of dissent, which right. is, which in that case would be simply reading. And uh, I, I suppose in what you were saying as well, in uh, was uh, what you were just saying, there, there's something interesting about their their reciprocity of of blur. I would say because yeah. you would probably more self censor if because of this blur, because you don't know if what you're reading is kind of is 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 still okay or if, yeah. or if it starts to be decentral but just like you said it also means that you can use this blur to say like no no but that's not what I, that's not what i meant that's yeah. not what i meant but yeah. everybody yeah. understands that Exa- it is. exactly so. and it happened like that a lot with music too like there were a lot of singer songwriters in in cuba which it's extremely interesting because uh, you then find out that they are the like people like left you know like people are sympathized with with the Cuban government abroad like in Chile or Argentina or in Spain or whatever listen to this music but listen to this music as a symbol of the Cuban revolution Mm. and they have this like relationship with this music that's like um, they see it as a symbol of the revolution as a beautiful positive thing that they believe in and however a lot of these songs in Cuba had all these intermean and all these meanings, and they had, they were completely littered with like all these like um, f- verses and lyrics that you could like apply to situations. And a lot of people used this as a um, feeling like it was some kind of protest, even mm-hmm. though it was never explicit, you know. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was always really interesting to me the perception of like the same thing from inside and outside. Like we saw it as an act of protest, but against the thing that the other people were trying to make it a symbol of. Which is, yeah, it's kind of strange. No, and I'm glad I'm glad you talked about music because I suppose we are we're being a little bit uh, uh, book centered in this conversation, and, and uh, <laughs> it kind of puts us as like the intellectuals uh, 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 in awe in front of what knowledge can do. But I mean, we we still have to consider it. So I I was talking about autodafe earlier, and autodafe in Portuguese means act of faith, right. and faith. That, that would mean that if, if burning books consists in, uh, into an act of faith, it basically means that faith is would be the opposite of knowledge. So it's interesting how <laughs> yeah. there is a kind of uh, a re- religious aspect to it in the sense uh, in the sense that you kind of have to blindly trust mm-hmm. whichever transcendental entity entity yeah. controls you, whether it's God, the government, or whatever. Yeah. But uh, and even like. I, 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 I don't think many people know that, but the the, the Catholic Church still have uh, the index, which is like this this list of books that they ban they banning themselves on. Obviously, they they don't have their they they, they don't have the same uh, 
power. control yeah. apparatuses than 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 a, a government, especially on an island, as we were saying. But still, like they they do, they still do an update, which is <laughs> incredible. A list of books that you should not read, you should not have uh, if you're uh, a, a devout uh, Catholic. Which... Yeah. Well, there's um, a lot of connections between a government like Cuba's or um, similar governments that still exist. Um, and religion, uh, I feel like they one of the first thing they do is ban religion. Mm-hmm. So they can. I feel like the reason why they ban religion is not. It's not other than to replace it with their own ideology that becomes a religion. Like it becomes dogmatic and it becomes something that in Cuba, like you had like all the old ladies that in a different life would have been the old Catholic ladies that would have been after you for wearing a short skirt or like sleeping with your boyfriend are now like the best, like, you know, the guardians of the revolution and they, they ha- make it their job and sometimes actually it's their job to um, watch the block and mm-hmm. see who's doing what and like take note and, and, and make reports about uh, such and such is here, such and such has long hair, they are like uh, having some kind of reunion or something and, and, and it's, it's funny because it, the structure is very, very similar to the super religious structure and the way that um, the commander-in-chief is talked about is, is very, it's, it's almost like a deity and you have their picture, like where, where in the classroom you would have the cross before, you now have the picture of uh, Fidel and next to it the picture of Che. And mm. when I was a kid, in every classroom, in every public office, you have the picture of these two people. And it's like, it's like having a little, you know, virgin, like the little thing of the virgin or like mm-hmm. a cross. And, and you're not supposed to question it. You, just, you, you have all these like, almost like prayers, like all these things that you say. that you know, and when we were children, we had to like start the morning with like, political act every day that you had to be outside in formation and it was very military like and you had to repeat all these like mantras almost like mm-hmm. and they are like prayers to me I don't know like I, I, I think that it was very quickly replaced in the in, and, and there were people like a lot of uh, older people I feel like had already because they were raised in a Catholic society I had already this like kind of um, affinity affinity yeah. for, for, for this sort of behavior and they mm-hmm. just kind of made the switch and and it was very easy because it was a similar behavior just like the ideology just, just switch the bible for the whatever the party i don't know some i'm sure there's some kind of book mm-hmm. that they have that outlines their ideology you know mm. um so, so something else we wanted to talk about in this conversation is uh is uh Relatively different, at least on the on the paper, because it's it's about the work of uh, Jorge Luis Borges and uh, and uh, the, the the various ways he's been writing about books and, and libraries. But um, I feel I feel I should let you there let you make the transition here because you actually, <laughs> for you it actually makes a lot of sense to go from one to the other. Yeah, I uh, since you're talking about how you're surrounded by books, you can see here that I have this like little part of my bookshelf completely devoted to Borges and um, and the way that I've and Joyce uh, by uh, by the way well, Joyce as well. So the you, way the way that you, I the way that I have organized my bookshelf, which is something that it's uh, it's kind of I organize my books by the way that I feel that the writers that I really like would feel about the people that are around them. Mm-hmm. So I know that. Particularly, in all that Borges will feel really, really happy to be next to Sir Richard Burton and um, uh, Poe, because I know that those mm. are two people that would make him extremely happy. So, <laughs> and I put his friend inside his book, so Joe Casado, so they can hang out. 
Um, but anyway, um, I, I really uh, studied Borges for many, many years and, and his way of seeing the, the world and uh, to me is extremely interesting. And in the topic of libraries, he has this, I, I think Borges, first of all, has this very good sense of humor that I think a lot of people perceive Borges as some kind of like extremely erudite, um, very serious writer, but I think he had a very good sense of humor and a lot of the things that, there's a lot of jokes in there. And um, he's, uh, he's very, very interested and very obsessed with this, the, the, the notions of infinite and, 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 and a lot of mathematical like um, constructs. And for him, the libraries, um, he was uh, completely in love with books and he understood the power of books and understood the power of um, having them. And, 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 and he, I, I am sure that he, his, he has a vast knowledge of, of, of books in, in a lot of different languages too. And one thing about Borges that's, that's, and books that's um, a little bit sad is that he lost his sight mm. by the time he was, um, I think by 1940 something, he already was blind. Like, or he was not blind. Like he, he could see some colors, like he could see a little bit of light, but he could not read anymore. He lost his sight very, very, very young. So for someone that was so interested in books and so interested in libraries and the physical object of the book to not be able to read was kind of like a, the worst thing that could ever happen and he has some beautiful lines of poetry about about that too but um the library of babel which is one of his stories as you you know um one that is i think supposedly addressing libraries specifically um, I feel that the library is, is, is sort of uh, a, a metaphor for the, the universe, which is another one of, the, like, he likes to refer to the universe as, um, uh, in, a, in a way that I feel is, 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 uh, it's very specific of him. Um, and and it's, it's about the, in the vastness of, of possibilities and the vastness of, of, of knowledge of information and the fact that it, there's so many different versions of something that just change by one character, by one mm -hmm. comma. And um, there's another story by him called Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with that one. And, yeah. and that one is like one of my favorites because it's about a guy becoming Cervantes and writing the, 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 the <laughs> Don, Quixote. Uh, Don Quixote. But um, it was to the letter. It's just that he was not rewriting. It was not pl plagiarism. It was just like he was him. He became mm. him and wrote it. Um, and I feel like like there's there's something about the way that Borges sees libraries and the way that Borges' knowledge that is beyond um, a, a building. Like the building that he comes up with, like the uh, Library of Babel, is mm -hmm. this like completely fantastic yeah. sort of hexagonal um, beehive where you have like it's this like it's, it's this construct of artificial architecture where you see how rigid architecture is when it comes to knowledge because you have this like he posits this infinite uh, kind of like <laughs> structure that is holding these books and it's impossible to try to, to to find anything and you have to go from cell to cell and like uh, to me that is, is, is just sort of also speaking about like in an ever-changing universe where things are con con constantly uh, mutating and, and, and evolving, you have architecture is such something that is so permanent and so 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 hard that um, 
um, it's it's basically impossible to have like the, the library of Babel is something that is, is impossible and 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 the library itself is a, is impossible almost by definition because it could never have everything that needs to be mm-hmm. held in there and it tries and it, it, it and almost like the library uh, is more like a concept than a building you know that's why the libraries in Cuba I feel that are were interesting thinking of the time where people were just passing books hand by hand as libraries as well because it's almost like as if the entire country became a library that had no physical um, address but it was like the 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 bookshelves were the backpacks and bags all these people walking around and they were constantly moving and shifting yet somehow there was some kind of like very sophisticated system that knew at all times all these books were and these books were getting to the reader in some way but it was not in in a shelf and i feel like the more we move to this information society that we have so much um so much information that we don't even know what to do with that it's becoming more like that, you know, like information is carried almost in like little capsules by people and their devices and like their conversations and like their small libraries and, and the dissemination of this becomes like something that is really hard to to associate with an architecture because uh, there's, by the time that the building is done, you are already so far away from where you need it to be. So our libraries now, I think, become more places of, of meeting or like, almost like places of gathering mm-hmm. than they are about physical books and um, that also depends if you're what's your definition of, of architecture I suppose because we we can can take the trash traditional one which really yeah. pla- places us into monumental scales and this kind of thing but to, to me I, I, I'd like to argue that the, the backpack in which yeah. you get like three three uh, censored book in Cuba is that you you kind of uh, go that goes from one place to another is very much the same. We, we can call it architecture, we can call it design, we can call it whatever yeah. we want, but it's, yeah. it's yeah. definitely part of the same world yeah. than the library. Yeah, mm. you're right. I guess in that sense, then, it's not that, archi- that the library is moving away from architecture, it's moving away from uh, the, f- the, the, the traditional, institutional. the institutional mm-hmm. uh, concept of a building, yeah. where um, even in architecture of buildings, we are already moving away from the institutional model because, like, in many reasons, but also because institutions are large and expensive and really hard to uh, get built. And whereas, like, smaller structures or things that are like uh, more—I mean, the the more local and more um, manageable—are maybe more possible and a little more democratic too. So um, I am very interested personally in the in in the smaller scale of things and where um, and 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 in, in things that are, you know grow and, and and fluctuate in their own pace and by the people that need it you know. But the institutional the library, I think, even though I just said that, I think it's um, a very interesting and important one because even though I like the the small confluences and like the small rivers of people doing their own thing I think that it's very interesting and very noble for a group of people to keep a catalog of, of the things that have been done and this catalog is becoming more and more like a more like an open source thing that people just contribute to but it's interesting that some people take it as their career as their um, purpose to to be the this just kind of like a guardian of, uh, of knowledge in a way or another, I don't know if that, to what extent that is really possible, but um, I'm not I'm not against the idea of having libraries or, that are institutional. I just really like the fact that 
the the, the concept of the library is able to to really grow beyond that Mm -hmm. and to be something else for somebody else. It's interesting because I, I, I might... I'm talking. I'm taking. I'm talking under your control here. But I. I think. I think uh, the short story called the Book of Sand of Sands that Bohas mm-hmm. brought was written after the Library of Babel. It's and, possible, yeah. And I think there is. I mean, we every architect loves the Library of Babel because there is this because monumental infinite yeah. architecture with this central pit in which when you die, people uh, di- you, you got. Uh, as Boras said, you got devote, devote hands to to, to pull yeah, your to, ca- your yeah. cadaver in the in the infinite void, and your he he has a he says that the 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 air is your coffin. I right. mean, it's, it's beautiful. All that is 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 beautiful. But <laughs> I think that the book of sand, which is pretty much the same, which is this book that uh, has an infinity of book in it, and you never find the same page again. And so there is a kind of similar pattern in it, but. Without the institution, the building is not here Absolutely, anymore, which yeah. is interesting, the, 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 the way, the, the path that Bohas took in this kind of... And, I, and I, I personally think that architects read the Library of Babel too literally, yeah. like way too literally. Like I, I mean, doesn't the, the book... It's the, normal, the, it's, but it's doesn't, really architectural. Yeah, but there's like, uh, yeah, but there's like, uh, I think, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, do I have this story here? Um, yeah, I mean, even, it's in the first, it's in the first uh, line of the, of the story. It says, the universe, o el universo que otros llaman biblioteca, yeah. the universe that other people call library, yeah. blah, 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 blah. So he's telling you there in the very first letter, he's not talking about a library, you know. So it's, it's it, I think it's taken too literally to me, like actual hexagons and actual like rooms. I think it's, it's more about the universe itself, but... The Book of Sand is, is, is it's a very... I, I like the fact... I, it's just like, to me also, I think that there's something about Borges that, uh, that doesn't get talked about so much, that it's like, I feel that he has this like almost emotional way of... I, I know a lot of people are going to want to kill me because I say that, but uh, very emotional moments in him, like where he has this kind of charming things, and I feel like he has a very physical relationship with books, and he has this like really like love for books. So like the metaphor of using the book to symbolize something or to or to talk about the infinite or to talk about this like um, continuous of pages. And like, I feel like he just has this like great affinity with the object of the book, and he keeps bringing it up just so he can be with it. You know, <laughs> like that's funny in his because blindness. when you say he has a great affinity, I understood he had a great infinity, which <laughs> well, which, there you go. Which is a good yeah. <laughs> he he said in um, uh, there's a story in the in Siete Noches in the uh, there's an essay I think it's in Siete Noches, actually no, it's not. It's a it's in a, it's in nine Dantesque essays whatever. There's an essay about the, the Divine Comedy. Where he's talking about Dante, and Dante writing the Divine Comedy, um, Dante was in love with his own Beatrice, and and that Beatrice have, comes in the Divine Comedy in, in heaven, and in this in this essay he's arguing that uh, Dante only wrote um, the Divine Comedy just so that he the whole in Divine Comedy whole all cantos only so that he could bring Beatrice. In, and put her in heaven and mm. have her exist in this book because she was like not available to him in real life or something, which is something that if you think about it is super saccharine and and and, sh- and and you know sort of sweet and weird, but I feel like 
there's a lot of things that we do that have to do with um, have to do with things that our childhood or about love or about things that are um, beyond what the, the purely intellectual pursuit and I feel like for his like love for to talk about library books and writers and bibliographies and all these things because his life was like that and he lived between books and he at some point lost them completely mm -hmm. forever and he had to have students and people come and read to him so um he had this like extreme longing for them and 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 it's in, i think that's why in a way it's, it's so genuine because like even the poetry written about books that he has it's like it feels so like heartfelt because i mean i i think about it if i couldn't have books anymore because i lost my sight it would be it would be very terrible so mm -hmm. and i and i think maybe uh we can say that Borges understands or i mean fathoms the power of book in the fact that uh, despite what we usually say we usually say oh language is too poor to express our experience that's that's kind of the, a commonplace right uh, language is too poor to express words fail me <laughs> but Borges I'm, I'm willing to claim he's saying the opposite. He's, he's writing things that exist as words, but that are unfathom, unfathomable by, by, uh, yeah. by our understanding because, because of the infinity, because of, of uh, something like exponentiality. Uh, it's, it's, um, uh, it's vertical. Yeah. Um, and, and also... Which is which is something that it's is directly related to poetry. Um, in poetry, the words are physical objects. Like they're they're not placeholders for something else. Like in a way, like they have meaning, and, and sure, they are talking about things that you know have a, a semantic meaning. But there's something about the word itself, the way it looks, the way it sounds, the 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 fat or skinny or or, or the way that it is that um, it's very important and, and he was very interested in that as well and that's why I think that there's so much typography in his um, in, in his books because even in the Library of Babel he's talking about characters and he's talking about commas and like books like how many characters are there in, 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 the, in the language and then how many combinations of these characters are possible so he is treating language as a series of letters that can be scrambled and, and um, there's another story about him called Tolong Ukbad and Orbius Tertius, where he is, of course, finds this book, mysterious book, mm -hmm. and there's this article in the middle of it, him and Bjork Asad is fine, and it's all about this uh, place, this weird place where they have this weird language, and, and they, and, and in another uh, story where they have, um, there's this, um, El Idioma Analitico de John Wilkins, the analytical language of John Wilkins, this is a great story about this man, which I always thought it was a fictitious figure, but I guess exists existed, um, who was very interested in making this language that was his own language. And in this essay, like, Borges goes to lens explaining, like, the difference between moon and luna, mm. and how these are two words that have completely, completely different, and, and they mean the moon that you see in the sky, but, like, the sound of it, the, it's just, like, they, there's, a, there, there's a value to, this, to, the, to the letters, to the way that they are. And and that is the physicality of the universe. I feel that 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 he's trying to 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 talk about, and like how one moment and the next, like we are here and we're here in ten minutes from now, and and there's something physical that has fundamentally changed in us. Yet we're still here, and like um, I think he has a, a, a great interest in, in 
in the infinite possibilities mm-hmm. of, of combinations that we are also you know mm-hmm. and so. yeah and I, I think we're we're reaching the end of our conversation but but uh and i suppose it may be a little bit for for some of the listeners it may be a little bit strange that we shift so much from a, a very specific situation <laughs> of of cuba and to to Jorge Luis Borges like this way but I think that the, this very last part of the conversation precisely explains why books can possibly be the target of so much antagonism from a, a society of control so um, somehow we it's it's funny we did things yeah. upside down almost but but and also, and also I think I said because books like words we were saying before are physical objects that can be hated mm-hmm. like ideas are vague and, and you can have them and, and, but if they're in writing and they're in a book that has a title like it's a target that, that could be a target for censorship or it could be a target for I mean for devotion but it's definitely it suddenly becomes something tangible that people can relate to as opposed to something vague that, mm-hmm. that nobody really can grasp if if this conversation was filmed, we would probably end with uh, the last the last ten minutes of uh, of uh, François Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, uh, so adapted from the, the novel of <laughs> so Rebecca. So imagine, put it in your mind. So so imagine instead of instead of seeing it, imagine uh, a society that where books have been banned to the point that they're being systematically burned, where each person learns one book and becomes a, a living book uh, uh, and reciting its content to whoever asked for it and um, and there's a beautiful subversive subversive version in that Lidram thank you so much for, you uh, for taking the time and uh, I think I think it was fantastic thanks thanks bye